Welcome to episode 394 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Nanny, Maria, Kathleen, Lisa, Anonymous, and Nancy. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Nanny, Maria, Kathleen, Lisa, Anonymous, and Nancy for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I will be your host today. And joining me today is Mary. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Mary. Thank you. I asked you to bring a reading, and it looks like we might have a couple. What did you bring? Yes. The first reading I picked is from Courage to Change on page 61, March 1st. Sometimes knowledge isn't all it's cracked up to be. Naturally, it can be helpful to look at past experiences for information about ourselves and our relationships. There's much to be learned from inventories, memories, and reasoning things out with others. But waiting for insight can become an excuse to avoid action. For example, some of us fall into the trap of trying to analyze alcoholism. We don't want to accept the reality of our circumstances because we haven't yet figured out the rhyme and reason of it. The fact is that alcoholism is an illogical disease. We may never fully comprehend it. Nevertheless, we have an obligation to ourselves to accept the reality in which we live and to act accordingly. Others want to ignore the spiritual nature of the Al-Anon program, waiting for a clear and comfortable understanding of a higher power. Many of us never attain that clarity, yet we manage to develop rewarding relationships with a power greater than ourselves by taking the action and praying anyway. Today's reminder, information can be wonderfully enlightening, but it is not the answer to every problem. I will be honest about my motives today. And the quote is a Zen proverb. If you understand, things are just as they are. If you do not understand, things are just as they are. I love that proverb. It's so true. Yes. The second reading I picked out is a lot shorter. It's two sentences from the book, Many Voices, One Journey, page 381 and 382. It's a quote from another person who's speaking at a convention, I believe, and it says, In my opinion, diversity is the one aspect of Al-Anon where we see the greatest disparity between our aspirations and our accomplishments. I hope that in the years to come, our newer members will succeed in making Al-Anon a more diverse fellowship. You wrote to me and said that you would like to talk about diversity in the program How did you put it? I put people of color in recovery, and then I put diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging as like a second option for the title. Okay. Let's start with a little introduction of yourself. I know your name is Mary, and that's about all that I know. 
I am a grateful member of Al-Anon and have been for 12 and a half years. I will be 13 years in program in June, and I have many people that brought me to the rooms, but I stay for myself because it's a focus on ourselves program. I do a lot of service in Al-Anon, and you can't see me, but I am a person of color in recovery, and I've noticed that there aren't that many of us. (laughs) And I think it's an important issue to be discussed. And the quote said, I do hope that it can be something that we can continue to work on in the program so that we're more inclusive and open to all who want to take advantage of the benefits of the program. So I thought it would be a cool topic for you. And hopefully you did too. And that's why you invited me to (laughs) co-host. Absolutely. I know that our third tradition says that the only requirement for membership is a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. So on that level, we say anybody can come and anybody is accepted here. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have some thoughts about what's up with that when yeah. we get to that? <laughs> I have lots of thoughts about that. Let's start with your story. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to give a short version of how I got to the rooms. I did grow up in a household where there was lots of drinking. I am an Asian person of Asian descent. To be specific, I am Korean and I'm also an immigrant. I immigrated to the United States when I was 10 with my family and my father. To the best of my knowledge, he still drinks to this day. We don't talk about his alcoholism. I do keep in touch with him. So he was a drinker. A lot of my uncles were drinkers. All of my dad's friends were drinkers. My cousins were drinkers. And I married an alcoholic. And I'm still married to him. He is the one that got me in the room, but I'm the reason I stayed. I found empty bottles of vodka in the garage. And that's what led me to look up AA on the internet. Mm -hmm. So this is 13 years ago. I had never heard of Al-Anon, actually. Never in my life. Never. I think that's true for a lot of people. Yes. And also, I hear very frequently in the rooms, oh, I've been hearing about Al-Anon so long, and I finally decided to join. That is also something that I hear. But I personally had never heard of Al-Anon. I think a lot of like therapists refer people and stuff like that. But anyway, I have never heard of it. And I think it's talked about less in people of color communities compared to the dominant culture. Just something I think, yeah, I don't know the reason for that, but I think it it might be true. I knew about AA though, because that's very popular in movies and books. So I looked up AA and there was a link to Al-Anon from AA. So I clicked on that link, found my first meeting, called in sick to work, went and cried the whole time. <laughs> In other words, a typical first Elanon meeting. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I was so desperate. That was my bottom. I felt so much relief, even in that very first meeting. And I have never taken a break. I come every week. And now with Zoom meetings, I go to three to four meetings a, a week. Mm-hmm. And I worked all the steps with my sponsors. And I have sponsees of my own. I do a lot of service. I started a meeting. I'm a group rep. I've done other service. So I'm an active member, a grateful member of Al-Anon, but I recognize that it's not a perfect program. What is ever, but yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. There's no perfection in this world. I hear you. The question of diversity is an interesting one for me. Well, hopefully for everybody who's listening. If I think about the meetings that that I attend or have attended, and I look around the room, I see definitely a diversity of ages, but not so much of color. I was going to say it partly reflects the city that I live in, but also it doesn't. It's a university town, and so there's a large number of people of Asian and South Asian descent here. And you're right. It hadn't really occurred to me. Mm-hmm. But when I look around the room, it's mostly white people, maybe mm-hmm. a few black people. I had a, a friend who has since moved away in the program who was Indian, but very few other people of color. So I have to wonder, <laughs> like, why? Yeah, um, why? <laughs> and I suspect that you may have some insight, maybe, or maybe some theories. But you ask, how diverse is your group? You ask that question. Yes. It's a question from page 382 of Many Voices, One Journey, which is one of our Cal Conference Approved Literature. You know, the two questions from that page are, how diverse is my group and how can we bring the message of recovery to a greater number of people of all backgrounds, ages, and genders? I think what you observe, Spencer, is true of most of Al-Anon in the United States, at least. As you know, or maybe you don't know, but they do a membership survey every three years. The most recent one came out and it showed that 90% of Al-Anon is white members, at least those who took the survey. And that was an improvement from the one before six years ago or whatever, which was 92% of Al-Anon was white. The demographic of the United States is 60% of the United States is white, 6-0. So somehow we are losing the diversity that we see in the United States is not being found in the rooms. If I really knew the answer as to why that is, then I could solve the problem. I think there are actually many reasons for this, and I'll get into some of that. But I, as a person of color and as a person that's been affected by the family disease of alcoholism, I have found so much wisdom, serenity, relief, and fellowship in the rooms that I really do want to carry this message to others that look like me. And you're right, Spencer, even in areas where there is a huge diversity in the population in terms of race, ethnicity, It's still the rooms are white. (laughs) I live in a very diverse area in California. And for the first 10 years of my Al-Anon journey, I went to meetings and they were almost all white. During the pandemic, I have found people of color meetings. So now I mostly go to people of color meetings. And so my meetings are very all different colors. And there's Black folks and Asians and Latinos, and so much more representative of the United States, I think. But until I found those meetings, almost every meeting I went to, I was the only Asian in that room. Thank you for mentioning the survey. I did actually fill that out myself, but then I have forgotten about it. And I found it on the Alanon.org website. I will put a link to the survey results and 
the survey page, and then you can click to get the 2021 survey or whatever other years you're interested in and see it for yourself. It's pretty short. I'm looking at this. I'm like, okay, so the average age of an Ellen member is 62 and a half years. Members reported attending their first meeting at 44.1 years old. There are two meetings that I attend regularly. And in one of those meetings, that statement is probably pretty close to true. There are people who are younger than me. There are people who are older than me. I am in my mid-60s. The meeting that I started at actually had a large number of younger people, and I'm in a college town. So during the school year, we get some younger people coming into meetings because they're college Mm -hmm. students. So probably around here, the average age may be younger than that. And the other thing, when we even talk about diversity of gender, 87% almost are female and less than 13% are male, and less than 1% don't identify as either male or female. And I'm glad they put that choice in the survey. I don't know when they started adding that and giving you a choice that was neither male or female. There's all these axes of diversity. Yes, Al-Anon is overwhelmingly female. Mm-hmm. Al-Anon is overwhelmingly white. Why is that? And old. And old. <laughs> and old, yes. Yeah. Can own old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my mid-40s, so I was in my 30s. According to Al-Anon, I'm a young chicken. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Um, how do we bring the message of recovery to a greater number of people? And I think Al-Anon obviously does know that this is a problem. It's in the book that I quoted earlier, and I know that the conventions have had special topics the topics of choice that the trustees pick, I forget what it's called specifically, and those topics has included diversity in the past. But I think one thing that has helped actually is the pandemic. Because before the pandemic, almost all meetings were face-to-face and it was hard for people of color to find each other. And we were almost always in a room, the only Black person, the only Asian person, the only Indian, both Native American and South Asian Indian. So the pandemic, with so many meetings moving to Zoom, has opened up this opportunity for people of color to find each other. And another thing that happened pretty recently is that, you know, there are certain group types that you can search for on the Al-Anon website. You can search for men's meetings and women's meetings yeah. and LGBTQIA plus meetings. And they did add people of color as one of the advanced search criteria that you can search for. Now, there aren't that many. I believe there's only like less than 10 for sure, people of color meetings. But there are two electronic people of color meetings that are registered with WSO. So you can search for those and they'll pop up if you click on that advanced search people of color option. And then for in-person, to the best of my knowledge, the meeting that I started, (laughs) which is called the Asian Pacific Islander Diaspora Al-Anon family group in California, I believe we, we are the only registered, not electronic, so regular on meeting that's spe- specifically for people of color. Hmm. So that's great. I think that was the right first step. It had been in the works for a long time and I kept petitioning WSO to okay. add that. So I'm hopeful and I do 
hope and want and wish that more and more meetings will be added that have that box checked so that we can find more people of color meetings. Just like we have meetings for men, for women, for LGBTQIA, I think it's important to have meetings for people of color because it adds that additional layer of safety for us. Did you know about that? That they added those? I did not. I'm pretty comfortable in my meetings and uh, I haven't often gone in search for a new meeting. I'm curious though, before they had that checkbox, how did you find meetings with a large number, majority of people of color? So that's a very interesting question because there was no way. There wasn't, I couldn't, I didn't. You said when the pandemic came, then you found some meetings and I'm just, I'm wondering how, did you have word of mouth from other people you knew or what happened? It was by word of mouth from some other fellows that I knew. And there were some marathons that were starting to pop up in the pandemic because the world was crazy, (laughs) not with just the pandemic, but with just everything that was happening. So I participated in some marathons and met some other people of color, and they told me about some other meetings that were focused on people of color. Because yes, this was before they added that Mm -hmm. people of color group type. So you couldn't even search for them. And I started meeting other people of color who were doing service and they told me about them. So basically word of mouth. Which, yeah, that would be it before having some kind of tool to do that. Mm -hmm. So I tried that search in my local area and came up, as you might have guessed, with zero. Yeah. Every once in a while, I search for every major city. (laughs) Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco area, even Texas. I search and there's zero for in-person meetings. But you'll you'll find mine. You'll find the Asian Pacific Islander meeting if you search within 250 miles of San Francisco. (laughs) Within 250 miles of San Francisco. Okay. It's closer than that, but. Yeah. But that's the large search radius. Okay, I'm going to say if I search within 250 miles of Detroit, Michigan, I find none. Probably not. So that's interesting. I have thought in other contexts about this question of how do we attract a more diverse group to an organization, in, in, in my case, it happens to actually to be the congregation that I'm a member of, which is very white and very educated and leaning towards old. Mm-hmm. I was thinking earlier, I was thinking there's three components. One is people have to know about it. You have to get the word out. You have to know it's there. Number two is there has to be something attractive. Mm-hmm. And number three is when you come, you have to feel welcome, at least welcome. And I think those three also are going to apply in the Al-Anon program. As you noted, you knew nothing about Al-Anon before you came. You hadn't heard of it. To my knowledge, I only heard about it when my loved one was in treatment programs, and they would tell us, friends and family, that there was this thing called Al-Anon that might help us. Mm-hmm. I understand, and I vaguely remember that there was a couple of advice columnists when I was growing up called Dear Abby and Ann Landers. I recalled that they both would recommend people to Al-Anon. 
mm. on occasion. Obviously, at the time I was reading them, I was young and didn't know that I was going to be married to an alcoholic one day. So first thing is just getting the word out. Mm-hmm. You watch a movie about an alcoholic who's in recovery. The loved ones of that alcoholic are never going to Al-Anon. Even if the alcoholic ends up going to AA, or, we don't hear about Al-Anon, okay? So yeah. we've got a, a publicity problem, despite the fact of having public information offices and so on. And even, I think, a lot of therapists, maybe these days it's getting better, but a lot of therapists don't know about Al-Anon. And I get this from friends of mine who are therapists who said, I never learned anything about Al-Anon in my training. Yeah. I wanted to share a story because I was just reminded of it. So the reason why people of color was added to the group type list was actually because a group of therapists who were people of color, I believe it was either like Detroit or Chicago, an urban area where there were a lot of people of color, a group of therapists wrote to WSO and said, we want to refer our patients to Al-Anon. But we can't find any meetings where they would feel comfortable. And that is what led to WSO adding people of color as a group type. So I do think people of color are being referred to Al-Anon from their therapists, from recovery programs, things like that. But therapy is resource intensive. It can be expensive and it takes time. And so for those communities that don't have as many resources, you'll get less referral from therapy. And in in the three areas that you mentioned earlier, how do they know about it? Do they like it? And I forget the third. Are you attracted to it and are you welcomed? Oh, yes. I think in all three areas, we get a hit for people of color. They're less likely to know about it. They're less likely to like it because when they come in, if they're only seeing a sea of white faces, then they're going to think, oh, maybe this program is for white people, not people that look like me. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody says something that's not inclusive, then they may not like it because they are being discriminated against or being seen as an other or their anonymity is not as protected if mm-hmm. they're the only person of color in a meeting. That's something that I only recently thought about because anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions. Yeah. And we hold that so closely. And I think that's such an important part of this program. And yet, if you're a person of color and you're the only person of color at a meeting, you're at is kind of busted. <laughs> All the more reason why we need people of color meetings. I have yeah. a question there. When a group of young people in one of the meetings that I attended decided that they wanted a meeting that was mostly young people instead mm-hmm. of mostly old people. So they started a meeting. They wanted to register it as the young people's meeting or something. And they were told from the WSO that they should choose a more inclusive name for the meeting. Mm-hmm. Ended up being called Young at Heart, mm. which is a nice name. And actually, it was a meeting that I attended regularly because it was a really vibrant meeting focused on the solution and a lot of people with some good recovery in there. But I always wondered, I'm not a young person. You know? <laughs> and so I feel a tension between the third tradition, and 
meetings that are intended for people of color, LGBTQIA+, young people, women, men, at the same time understanding that people feel more comfortable mm-hmm. with people who are more like them. Comfort and also there's safety as well. I have to admit, I am coming at this as an, I wouldn't say elderly, but definitely mature, white, (laughs) cisgender, male, with a lot of education and a very comfortable living situation. Yeah. And I know I can't set that aside. And when I say, well, I would be comfortable coming into that meeting, that doesn't mean anything for anybody else. It's really hard to put myself in the position of somebody who is not like me in mm-hmm. so many ways. And I have all those advantages. You know, I came to that meeting and I said, hey, is it okay for me to attend? Mm-hmm. And I was welcomed in, partly Great. because a lot of the people in the meeting, I already knew them from other meetings. We were friends, et cetera. But I have never gone to a gay men's meeting. Women's meeting? Have you ever tried to go I to a women's meeting? I have never tried to go to a women's meeting. I try to hold that boundary. I understand that not everybody does. It's attention. It's no, attention. Think, it is, yeah. Yeah. It's attention, and I think that's it's a good tension. I don't think there's anything wrong with having that tension. Okay. And I think there are lots of great things that we can learn from the traditions that will help guide each of us as we make decisions about what meetings we want to go to and what meetings maybe it's best that we don't go to or force ourselves upon them. Like your choice to not go to women's meeting, I think that's wonderful. And as a woman, especially if I was a woman that was traumatized by men in the past, if a man barged in my meeting and didn't care if we wanted him there or not, then I would feel some ways about it. And the other thing is that each group is autonomous in this program. So this is, I do differ from World Service and the service manual, in my opinion. But in the service manual, it says that everyone should be welcome at any meeting. So if I'm a, if I'm Spencer, an older straight man, and I want to go to a gay women's meeting, then According to the service manual, I should be let in. I disagree with that because I think the tradition four, which says each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting another group or Al-Anon or A as a whole, I hold that a little bit more higher in standard. So I think that the group, by group conscience, should decide if that meeting should be for those in that group type. So if it's a women's meeting for women or if they want to welcome anyone. And this applies to every group type. If it's an LGBTQIA meeting, if it's a people of color meeting, I think that group can decide and should decide for themselves if they want to limit attendance to LGBTQIA folks for that meeting or for people of color for that meeting. Because you can go to any other meeting. So as a straight person... Why would I want to force myself onto a meeting that's specifically for LGBTQIA when they say that they feel safer without me? I can go to so many other meetings out there. And maybe in the olden days when there were no Zoom meetings and there were less meetings, it would be a problem for the newcomer, like the desperate newcomer. I think that's an argument that's 
usually brought up when this issue is discussed. What about the newcomer who really needs a meeting? And the only meeting that exists is a women's meeting. Can a newcomer that's a guy be allowed to come? I think every meeting, we we have to obey the unenforceable, right? I don't think any meeting would turn away a desperate person just because that person doesn't meet that meeting group type. That's my opinion. But again, we can't enforce the unenforceable. We have to believe that we are here to carry the message and that we're not here to be exclusive, but also we should respect the autonomy of each group. Yes. Very well stated. I think about what happens sometimes when we get in our meetings, we get people who are looking for AA, maybe don't understand that Al-Anon's not AA coming in. And we always say welcome. And then we probably at the end of the meeting say, really, you should probably go find an AA meeting. You're welcome to come here, but as you describe yourself as an alcoholic, you would probably be better served by going to AA, something like that. And I guess that feels similar to what you said to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. You were desperate. We let you in. This is really probably not the place that you need to be. Yeah. So that's just my opinion. Yeah. No, I understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, But what you said earlier about that meeting, having to go through like a review process for that meeting name, Mm -hmm. I think that is another reason why there are so few people of color in Al-Anon. I have heard that there have been meetings that tried to start for people of color and their registration was denied by WSO because they decided that the meeting wasn't, quote, inclusive enough or that it violated some tradition or legacy. I think that gets into governance, <laughs> which we're not supposed to be doing in Al-Anon. I understand if, if it was some sort of egregiously racist name or something so exclusive, like only members of the country club. I understand that. But if people want to have a people of color meeting, I, I think we should be allowed to have a name that that we want to have. For example, there are many terms for people of color, and one that kind of is popular right now is Black Indigenous People of Color, BIPOC. I personally would prefer that over people of color because I think it's a little bit more specific and calls out the differences that people who are Black and people who are Indigenous to the United States have compared to other people of color. So I like that word, but apparently that they don't like that. <laughs> so if I were to try to register, a meeting like BIPOC in Al-Anon, it would probably get denied. And I think that's governance, and I don't think that's cool at all. You have a note here about Tradition 10, which states, the Al-Anon family groups have no opinion on outside issues, hence our name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Yeah. Again, there's a tension, right? I think that certain words are potentially viewed as inherently controversial, which I don't know whether I agree with that statement or not, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, so here's this tension between autonomy and this tradition that says we don't have an opinion on us. See, naming yourself, naming your group, I guess, could be seen as having an opinion. I don't know. Yeah, it's a great line. And I agree with you. There is a tension there. And I think it's a good tension. And I think that 
for Al-Anon Family Group's World Service to have an opinion on the term is a violation, but not for the people who belong to that community. They should be the one who chooses what word describes them. You probably didn't notice, but I said that I was Korean. Mm -hmm. I didn't say that I'm Korean-American. And the name of my meeting that I started is Asian Pacific Islander. It's not Asian American Pacific Islander. I should be able to use that and not have to use whatever sanctioned word. If somebody said, no, you're Korean American. I'm like, yes, I am Korean American, but I would prefer to call myself Korean because I'm a Korean person that lives in America. (laughs) Just as there are people who call themselves Irish or German. You don't say Irish-American, do you? German-American? They and their ancestors have been living in America for 150 years. They might still call themselves Irish. Exactly. But the real reason why I added Tradition 10 onto our list of things that I wanted to discuss with you is because this tradition gets used against people of color quite often in the rooms. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times people of color may share things in meetings that may make white folks uncomfortable, shall I say? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's unique to people of color. I think it's any one of us can share something that makes somebody else feel uncomfortable. There's violence in alcoholic homes. There's abuse. There's lots of things. But sometimes when people of color share things that make the dominant culture uncomfortable, they Bring up this tradition and say, you can't talk about that because that's an outside issue. This happens. I'm sure it may be hard for you to accept that this happens, but this happens quite enough that I think it makes people of color feel unwelcome in in meetings. Yeah. All I can say is that I have not been aware of it happening. That's all I can say, right? And whether that means it didn't happen around me or I just didn't notice it when it happened, I can't say because I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You shared earlier that most of the meetings that you go to are mostly white. So, you know, less likely for you to see it. But I've heard from so many people of color who've been so distraught that they were silenced and told that they couldn't talk about something because it was a, quote, outside issue because it made somebody uncomfortable. And it's something sometimes even as, you know, they talked about abuse in their home and somebody told them, said, oh, that happens only in like black families. And that's an outside issue. Please don't talk about that. You're rolling your eyes. I am telling you that this No, happens. I'm not rolling my eyes. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? Yes. Why is this you, person you're, saying You think this it's thing? unbelievable. Yes. I don't think it's unbelievable. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's unacceptable. It Yes, it is unacceptable, yeah. but I wanted to talk about it because it happens so often. And so I guess my ask of those who may be listening is please do not use this tradition to censor what people of color share about in meetings. We are all allowed to share our own experience, strength, and hope. And the experiences of people of color may sometimes be different than those in the dominant culture. And so it may make you uncomfortable, but that is still our experience. So please do not use this tradition against us. And this tradition is for groups. It's not for individuals. It says Al-Anon family groups have no opinion on outside issues. As individuals, 
we can have our opinions. Now, we don't bring in politics or religion and things like that into meetings because those are three obstacles to success. But we can honestly share our own experiences without this tradition being used against us. I have had the experience of somebody in a meeting getting political. And even when I agree with their position, I still am uncomfortable that they're sharing it in that context because I still got enough codependency in me to be worried that somebody else is going to be offended and not come back, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You laugh, but it's true. And yeah, you had an experience of doing service that is related. Yes. And it's a little bit related to what I shared before with the use of the term BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color. I volunteered and then was chosen to be a speaker at a service conference. It was supposed to cover the Pacific Coast. So it was a West Coast service conference. And apparently it happens every year, but it was my first time speaking there. And I prepared a lovely presentation, but I used the word BIPOC in the presentation. Apparently the conference organizer had some opinions about the word, (laughs) emailed their delegate and emailed WSO and basically told me that it seemed like I was stirring up controversy. So unless I make all these changes, they will assume that I'm not going to speak. This happened before you spoke. This happened before I spoke because they wanted to see my presentation before I spoke, Mm -hmm. which is fine. So then I was like, okay, I'm not like set on using this word BIPOC. I can use people of color, but also like, why are you trying to get all these people's approval for a service conference? And you're assuming that I'm wanting to cause public controversy. Like that is not my intention at all. I just want to carry the message Mm -hmm. to all who have been affected. I want to address this glaring problem that we have in Al-Anon and talk about it. I'm not here to push for the use of the word BIPOC just because I choose to use that word to describe my community doesn't mean I'm saying Al-Anon has to use it or anything like that. That experience and how that tradition was used to kind of censor me. In the end, I did give the talk and actually it turned out really good because a lot of people who heard me invited me back to their district service meetings and other things to give the same exact talk because mm-hmm. nobody had talked about diversity in Al-Anon like the way I had. Right. <laughs> I had graphs of the membership survey and everything like that. So it it ended up fine, but they just left such a sour taste in my mouth and I did not feel welcome at all by those people that put that conference on. They were trying to control me. Yeah. And I thought we were trying not to do that in Al-Anon. <laughs> no kidding. We haven't talked a lot in the podcast about the concepts of service. I did a series in 2015 about the concepts, but it's not something that comes up very often in the podcast. It's certainly not something that comes up very often in meetings either. I heard recently a workshop that was put on by a mother and son at an Eleanor conference on using the steps, traditions, and concepts in the family, I think was the way they put it they were able to really make the concepts come alive in a way that I had not understood them before. I will try to find a link to where I I heard this 
it's like two hours, but it kept me engaged. Like I didn't want to stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Concept five says the right of appeal and petition protect minorities and ensure that they be heard. It's been a while since I've read the description or the, the discussion of that in, in our conference approved literature, but basically the idea is that everybody's ideas deserve to be heard and given a proper hearing so that we can make the most informed decision that we need to. There's this little saying about how the steps taught me how to live with Mm -hmm. myself and the traditions teach me how to live with other people. And I think it was in this workshop where she said, and the concepts teach me how to work with other people or work in a group. And part of that is that nobody in the group should feel silenced. Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that you put this in here because it is totally relevant to what we're talking about. Yeah. I do love this concept. And when I've seen this in action, in business meetings especially, it's been so beautiful. I think a lot of people do the majority wins type of thing in a lot of business meetings. Somebody makes a motion, we talk about it, we take a vote and majority passes. But a lot of the meetings in my state, I think we're trying to do like a KBDM knowledge-based decision-making and more of a Mm -hmm. consensus-based decision-making so that it's not just, you just have to go get more than 50%. It's let's, let's try to get consensus. And so it needs a lot more discussion and when you voted in the minority, then you're given a special chance to voice why you voted against the motion or for a motion, whatever the minority vote was. And I think that is so beautiful because for me, growing up in an alcoholic household, like I learned to not have a, any needs because I knew that they couldn't get met. I became small. That was my strategy. Become perfect and small. <laughs> And so in Al-Anon, I was like, I feel so safe in Al-Anon meetings because there's a script, there's a time limit. It's so clear. No one's going to interrupt me. No one's going to cross talk. And I love that. And even in business meetings, we can ask whatever questions we need to ask. We can just keep on talking about something until there is like emerges. It's almost like magical at times. A consensus will emerge if we are all given the same knowledge and we have time to process. And I think that this concept, the right of appeal and petition protects minorities and ensure that they be heard, really protects any one of us who are in the minority. And all of us are actually a minority in some aspect. It may not be because of your race or your gender or your education status or whatever, but all of us have a part of us that are in the minority at certain points in our lives. So everyone can relate to that. And I really hope that especially those are who are in the minority, whether that's because of your the color of your skin or your gender or your sexual orientation, that you exercise this concept <laughs> and know that this concept protects you and ensures that you be heard. Is there anything else that we didn't say? I wanted to elaborate a tiny bit about safety. I believe that at one point, AA had a safety statement and it included 
something about racism is a safety issue. There's things that make us uncomfortable. And then there's the issue of safety. And when people of color experience like silencing us or censoring us or breaking our anonymity or or feeling like we're not welcome or that we can belong in a group, that really just jeopardizes the feeling of safety that I believe everyone needs to have to go to a meeting and to keep coming to a meeting. And so please know that it's a huge important issue for people of color at the tiniest hint of racism or discrimination or othering. It makes us feel unsafe. And if you don't know, ask a question, but please don't assume anything. We're all diverse and different. And even though I shared like that I'm Korean, I'm just one Korean person. Do not (laughs) take whatever I shared in this podcast and think that all Koreans think like me. Oh my God, Koreans are against the WS. No, please don't do that. We don't want to be stereotyped and we're all individuals just like everyone else. And our safety is important, just like yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and talking about this difficult topic. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being open to have it. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery is working in our daily lives. I asked you to pick a couple of songs. What's the first one? The first song is It's Quiet Uptown from the musical Hamilton. It's written by Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast of Hamilton sing it. Renee Elise Goldsberry, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Philippe Basu. I love this song. I picked this song because I think the first do in our do's and don'ts list is do forgive. And this song helped me forgive. And that's why I picked this song. There's a part in the song, a spoiler alert for anybody that has not seen the musical, (laughs) the son of Hamilton, his son dies. And so there's a rift between his wife and him as one of the reasons for a breakdown in their relationship. But through this song, they come back together. And there's a part in the song where it's like, forgiveness. And there was a time, a period of few months during the pandemic when I was very upset with my spouse. (laughs) We're still happily married. He is sober. He's a person just like me and he's not perfect. And I'm not either. He did something, he said something during pandemic that hurt me very, very deeply. And I was not going to forgive him because how could he hurt me so deeply and say all these mean things about me? And he took it back and he said, sorry, but I was like, F you, I don't need you. That's my default is I don't need you. So we were just like roommates for a few months, but listening to the song and It touched me. It touched my heart and it helped me forgive my partner, my spouse for the mistakes he made. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I picked the song. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? To some extent, as I was talking with Esther a couple weeks ago about step 12 and practicing these principles in all our affairs, which is what we're really talking about in this section is like, how are we practicing these principles? So many of the things that I learned in recovery have just become part of 
how I live now, that sometimes it's a little tricky to pull something out and say, okay, there's where I used a recovery principle. But I think right now, today, the principle that sticks out for me is in step 10. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it because there have been several incidents over the past week, several days at least, where I messed up. The <laughs> Probably the most recent example is when I was distracted by the events of the day and forgot that we were supposed <laughs> to be recording a podcast tonight. I'll be honest there. I forgot. And I have mechanisms that I try to put in place to remind me when I'm doing things that are not in my regular routine. And one of those is to put things on a calendar and to put an alarm on the calendar event. And for whatever reason, I didn't do that. It was on the calendar, but there was no alarm. So mm -hmm. it didn't like buzz my phone and say, hey, you've got a thing coming up in 15 minutes where I could go, oh my God, I haven't eaten dinner yet. Ah. I actually had the same problem with a dentist appointment on Monday where I had scheduled a dentist appointment at 8 a.m. on Monday. Why I did that, I don't recall, but I did. I think partly because if I come in early, then it doesn't break up my day. I'm still working, so having a continuous space of time in which to work is helpful. And then I scheduled something else on top of the dentist appointment. And luckily, I figured it out like Sunday, and I was able to change the other thing and make it to my dentist on time. But then the same thing happened today, where I was chilling after work. Part of what happened at work went till 6.45. I think I finally stood up from my computer and I needed some food and I needed some time to chill. And my wife came home also getting home late from her work. We have a similar um, tendency to run late when we're really engaged in stuff. And she said, aren't you supposed to be? And I'm like, oh my God, I forgot. <laughs> so I'm admitting to you promptly. And I did. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you were still able to come on because it was a great conversation about something that needs to be talked about. But there also were some things that happened at work where I just made a bad decision a couple of times. Mm. I didn't think about all of the ramifications of a particular action. Can you? Can anyone ever do that, though? No. You try <laughs> to do well, and when you don't, you say, okay, I screwed up. I'm sorry. What can we do to make it better? What can we do to make it right? Again, that happened today. I had to make a change that meant that part of our system wouldn't work for a little while, wouldn't work right for a little while. And so I had to involve people on the support team so that they could be ready to deal with users who are like, hey, this thing doesn't work, and putting up a little notice that says this thing isn't going to work. And I thought we'd be able to do this thing in 10 minutes. Number one, it took longer than 10 minutes. And number two, when we did it, I discovered a bug and we had to roll it back. And it's just like, okay, this happens. I felt no reluctance mm -hmm. to say, oh, I screwed up. It's not working. Once I figure out what it is I need to fix, hopefully we can do it again tomorrow. And in fact, one of the support people said, yeah, so tomorrow? And I said, yeah. So that's happened several times recently. And I think when I pay attention, those kinds of things do happen. But it, it's been, become so easy to say, this is what I did. It was a mistake. And again, I appreciate so much you dealing with my misstep today. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. So that's what came up for me when I thought about how am I using these recovery principles in my life?
Awesome. I am like you too. I feel like the principles of recovery have gotten under my skin and into my bones. And I do practice a lot of them like all the time. So much so that like you, I have a hard time like specifying what it is that I am applying to my life today. But but I do notice when I'm especially <laughs> serene, I guess. Mm. And I don't know if you could tell, but I am a generally very positive person. I look for the good things in my life. And it's not because I've had the best life, but it's because I have shelter over my head. I, I have food to eat in the fridge and I have people I love and those who love me. And to, to me, that meets most of my needs. But I guess something that I've learned in recovery is to go slow and to let things take the time they take. I I picked a word for the year. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of this practice, but instead of resolutions, which nobody can keep anyway, you just pick one word. Pick a word. Okay. What's your word, for, word the year? for the year? So I used to pick a word for many years and then I stopped for a while because I, I didn't feel inspired. But this year I felt inspired. So my word for the year is inefficient. Inefficient. Oh, <laughs> Okay. Very, very specific. It's not inspiring at all. It's inspiring to me because that's the kind of person I am. But I picked this word because I am a recovering perfectionist and I get a lot of value from being productive and doing things and making the most out of my time. My brain is like constantly calculating what the best way to do something is. And this word gives me permission to rest and to take things slow, and to be inefficient, and find value in other things rather than just being productive and feeding the capitalistic machine, I guess. So that that's a way that I'm practicing the principles of recovery is being inefficient this year. <laughs> that's interesting, and I'm glad you explained it because now I understand why you chose it. Thanks. <laughs> it's it's a word that is encouraging you to think about doing things a little differently. Yeah. Awesome. I'm trying to think, what have I got coming up? And I have no idea. I've got a number of guests coming up that have topics they've suggested, and I don't remember right now what they are. So I don't know what's coming next. I actually, it might be after or before this episode actually hits the podcast internet waves, whatever. I'm going to be speaking at a conference. And you, it's funny you're talking about a word because the conference title, I guess, is Willingness is the Key in 2023. And so the word for the conference is willingness. I'm also going to be leading a panel and they wrote to me and said, "What? what's the topic for the panel? I said, obviously it's going to be willingness. And here's some things to think about. There are some of the steps that specifically say willing or imply willing, like step three implies willing. Step six, we become entirely ready. I guess that's willingness. Step eight, we have to be willing to, to make amends. But I think that all of the steps have some component of willingness in them. So, you know, how does this work for you in your life? I think I'm going to come back probably inspired to talk about willingness. So that might be a topic if you want to 
contribute to that, you can join our conversation. You can leave a voicemail or send us an email. You may also have thoughts or questions about the the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging and people of color in Illinois that we talked about today. And let's repeat those questions that you brought at the beginning from this book, Many Voices, One Journey. These are conference-approved questions, right? How diverse is my group and how can we bring the message of recovery to a greater number of people of all backgrounds, ages, and genders. Mary, if somebody wants to contribute, wants to ask a question, how can they do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of people of color and recovery, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, which is mostly notes for each episode now that we're up to 390-something episodes. Links to the books that we read from. I also have a link to the Al-Anon Biennial Survey. Is that what it would be called? Every three years. Yeah, every three years. <laughs> Al-Anon every three years survey. <laughs> Let's yeah. just move away from that whole Latin thing. Yeah. May I give the email address for the meeting that I mentioned earlier, the Asian Pacific Islander Diaspora Meeting? We meet on Zoom only. It's on Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. So that's a little bit late for those on the East Coast. If any of the listeners are interested in joining that meeting and they're Asian or Pacific Islander, you can email us for the Zoom meeting ID and the passcode. And our email is apidiasporaafg at gmail.com. I will put that email address in the show notes again at therecovery.show slash 394. Cool. What is your second song? My second song is a more recently released song than my previous pick. It's Lift Me Up by Rihanna. It's from the Wakanda Forever soundtrack. I just love the song. The moment I heard it when I was watching the movie, I've been playing it on repeat and annoying my family members who have to hear it on repeat along with me. I looked up all the lyrics and I'm trying to learn how to sing it. But I love the song because it, it taps into that little person inside of me that had needs and needed to be held and loved. And, and it gives me permission to ask for those things because in the song uh, is like saying, like pleading, hold me and lift me up, hold me down, keep me safe and all these things. So I think it's a beautiful song. Now it's time to open the virtual mailbox. Got a voicemail from Emon. 
Hello, Spencer. This is Germán. I'm calling you from California. He's on Los Angeles. And I discovered the recovery show because I was looking for a podcast for my own recovery. And I have heard so many things in your show that I really have helped me and I can relate to my life right at the moment. I just listened to your show number 393, which talks about taking what you like and leaving the rest. That to me has been one of the biggest freedoms to come to our meeting, especially on Zoom, because I always feel very un- uncomfortable. It's just so vulnerable just to go to this meeting to begin with, especially when you want to share. Knowing that you can take what you like and leave the rest gives me the freedom to say what's in my mind and to hopefully give some, not just my own experience, but some strength and hope to the ones that are listening. Also, the very first time that I went to an Ireland meeting, I didn't know what it meant taking what I liked and leave the rest, but I liked the fact that I could just take what I wanted to eat too applied into my life. I also heard that the meetings that I got, that I went to, which is suggested in the beginning to go to six different kinds of meetings before deciding if Alan and works for me, because every single meeting has a uh, different format and focus. One of the things that I heard also was keep coming back. And that's so great because it's the first meeting, all I did was cry. And I came into the first meeting because my husband, who was an alcoholic, had a huge relapse, and, and I never seen him like that in, after 10 years of marriage. Um, marriage to the relapse just happened little by little until the huge relapse happened, which I like to think that was his bottom, but again, I can't repeat. Unfortunately, the three-minute time limit ran out before Erman quite finished. But thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope around taking what you like and how I think that has changed for you in the time you've been in meetings. Anne wrote, Hi, thank you, Spencer, for your devotion to The Recovery Show. I was told about it at one of my meetings, and I listen to it as often as I can. I just finished listening to number 393, Take What You Like and Leave the Rest. One of the listener comments jumped out at me. That is the beauty of Al-Anon. If you listen long and hard enough, you will find someone who shares your story. You are not alone. I, too, have a 31-year-old son. The listener's stepson was 25. He is mentally ill and is a substance abuser slash addict. He does not recognize or refuses to recognize that he is sick and needs help. This is despite an arrest two years ago with a probation of mental health and substance abuse treatment. Needless to say, he did not follow through with his probation. The arrest was in another state, and I have no idea what the status of his probation is. I have finally learned to stay in my hula hoop and let him deal with his own issues. He came to live in our home after the arrest for his treatment and is still living in our home. We asked him to move out, but he refuses. When the verbal abuse got so bad, my husband and I moved out this past summer. He refuses to leave, and we have started the eviction process last fall. The municipality where we live has a very long eviction process. We were told it could take a year or more. Alanon has saved my life and kept me sane through this whole ordeal. My husband and I are on the same page in how to deal with our son, but we definitely needed help and counseling to get there. 
boundaries and codependency were, are, issues that we had to overcome with help. Al-Anon has taught me so much, and the reason I keep coming back as often as I can. Thank you for the service. I love the podcasts. Anne, that sounds like a difficult situation, Anne, and it sounds like you guys are dealing with it as best you can. Thanks for writing. Ray sent a note about the letter that I read in episode 391. Esther asked about an article that had been published in the Atlantic magazine, if I remember correctly, in about 2015, about other treatments for alcoholism, in particular some medication treatments that seem to help some people and might be appropriate for people for whom the 12 steps, whatever, don't work for whatever reason. Let's see, Ray says, my thought on that is where do we draw the line at solutions, especially as Al-Anon people, and that help is the sunny side of control. I think she's saying that she would not want somebody to come to her and say, hey, here's this pill so you can be less of a drunk. She says, I think I would be pretty offended. Okay, so yeah, none of us know what the right solution is for somebody else. We might think we do. I definitely thought I did a number of times, but it wasn't true. And what we learn in the al program is that in general, the people we love who have a problem of addiction, of alcoholism, need to come to their own solution. There's a couple of other things that that occur to me at this point. One is that in Al-Anon, we are encouraged to learn about the disease of alcoholism. That the disease of alcoholism is just that, a disease. And just as with depression or other mental illnesses, there may be medications that help and that those medications may be appropriate or not appropriate for certain people, but it's not my job to decide that. If they want to try them, I think it's great that they're there because not everybody manages to find sobriety or to deal with their addiction and their alcoholism in the same way. So those are my thoughts. And yeah, I'm not going to go forcing my ideas on somebody else. Another sort of difficult one here. Natalie says, hello, I'm the mother of an alcoholic. My daughter has been suffering from this terrible disease since she was 16. She is now 26. By now, I have realized and accepted that I can't cure or control my daughter's disease. As a mother, I can't accept that I didn't cause it because I brought my daughter to this world. She didn't ask to be born or to have this terrible disease. She is a consequence of my decision to have a child, so I am responsible for her. Also, I failed as her mother to protect her from sexual abuse as a child. Children who suffer from trauma are often prone to addiction, so yes, I feel that I caused her to suffer this terrible disease. My daughter doesn't drink the party. She drinks to numb her pain. She drinks alone extremely large quantities of alcohol. This is a slow suicide. She really wants to quit. She has been to rehabs willingly, sober houses, going to AA meetings and getting sponsors. She succeeded to be sober for a year to almost two years several times. My daughter never stole from me, never disrespected me. She has always been extremely kind and remorseful. For the past two years, she was sober, but then the man she was living with broke up with her and she relapsed. She lost her job. Her relapses are really intense and extremely dangerous, and unless someone stops her, she would drink herself to death. Since she lost her job, I am paying her rent. If not, she would be out in the street. She is a beautiful woman who probably would end up kidnapped or worse. I can't let this happen. 
When I hear parents who are okay with letting their kids reach rock bottom, I don't understand what worse needs to happen for these kids to stop drinking. And if they don't and they die, how are you supposed to live with this? What kind of higher power lets your child die on the street? Where is the love and compassion? How can you keep on living knowing you would have helped them? If this is a mental disease, how come we do help kids who are suicidal, but we have to let kids who are addicts reach rock bottom, even when they really want to stop, but the disease is stronger than they are? When they did all the treatments, went to AI, beg on their knees for the help of their higher power, but nothing happened. Please do a show with parents of alcoholics who lost their kids to this disease. I want to understand. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks, Natalie, for writing. It does sound like you're in a rough place right now. I have had several episodes with parents on the show. You can go to the recovery.show slash search and type in parent or parents, or there's some keywords underneath the search box that you can click on to find those episodes. But as far as I know, none of them actually have lost their child to this disease yet. And I think each of us has to make our own decision about what kind of support we give to our loved ones. Rock bottom is different for every person also. I don't know. It's a tough it's a tough decision. I know that. When my wife was drinking herself maybe to death, I did not have the power to stop it. I was able to, you know, be there for her. We had a home, we had food to eat and so on. So it sounds like you're doing that for your daughter. As you can see, I don't have any answers and I'm even struggling to express my thoughts here. Natalie says, please do a show with parents of alcoholics who lost their kids to this disease. If you are such a person and you are ready, able, and willing to talk about your experience, I would love to have that conversation with you for the podcast. Email me feedback at therecovery.show to talk about how we can do that. And Natalie, I wish the best for you and for your daughter. Thank you for writing. Amy says, hello, Spencer, relative newcomer here, just found your podcast a couple weeks ago. I'm wondering where to find pilot episode number one on boundaries. I can't find it on the page that says all the episodes. I can't find it in my podcast app. The problem is, in fact, what I thought it might be, which is that I had set both the all episodes page and I had set the size of the feed, as we call it, to be 400 episodes. Apparently, even though I'm only on episode 394, there are some repeats or something out there, or some unnumbered episodes or something, and there's more than 400 now. So anyway, I fixed that in both places. So pilot episode number one, boundaries should show up on the all episodes page, and it should also show up in your podcast app. So, yeah, thanks for writing, Amy, to prompt me to fix that little problem. Got a voicemail from Pat. Hi, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast. Suddenly, I am stimulated to call quite a few times to you. The question about stories, I just was listening to that episode. The story I think of is one of an Elanon response, surprising even me as it came out of my mouth. and. That's one of the joys of the program for me as I become more experienced with it and become more integrated into my thought processes. So quite a long time ago, 
my son called me rather distressed and said, Mom, this is after his dad and I had split. Dad wants to come live with me. And rather than saying, oh, that's terrible. He shouldn't be doing that to you. Which is what I normally would have done. Out came, well, how do you feel about that? He said he feel like our country doesn't care for our elderly very well. And we need to support our people who are older as they age. And I said, do what you think is the right thing and what's good for you. What's right for you. So several years later, and I did say somewhere along the line, maybe once or twice, gosh, honey, I don't think your dad's quite at that place where he can't live by himself. And after living with him for a few years in a few different locations, he came to the same conclusion. So much more powerful for him to discover that on his own. And what a moment of grace. And I'm so grateful that I knew on a very deep level, not to jump in and tell him what to do, but to support him in making the right decision for him. So that is one of, of course, many Al-Anon stories, but it came to mind this morning. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Pat, thank you so much for that story about helping your son to find his own answer and letting him live through that and learn from it. Sounds like you learned from it too. Patty has a question. How do I get started with Al-Anon meetings? Just find one in my area and show up? Thanks. To which I responded, the short answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, you just show up. That is the way we work. That's the way we roll here. But if you need help finding a meeting, the Al-Anon website has a number of different resources for finding a meeting. If you want an in-person meeting, there is a meeting finder for in-person meetings that you can Put in a location, a distance, maybe a time of day or a day of the week that you're interested in. Also, as we heard in this episode, there are selectors for men's meeting, women's meetings, etc., if that's of interest to you. If you want an electronic meeting, which is Zoom and a number of other ways of meeting electronically, including, I think, email, there is an electronic meetings page, again, with the ability to narrow it down according to time of day, language, etc. And what technology. Like if you like Zoom, you can check the box that says Zoom and it will show you Zoom meetings. If you prefer some other medium, I think there's an email meeting and you can check the box and it'll show you that one with instructions for how to get to it or how to sign on to it or whatever. And there's another page that lists telephone meetings, if that's your bag. So lots of ways to find meetings, but the shorter answer is, yeah, pick a meeting, show up. If you don't like that meeting, pick a different meeting. As we said in episode 393, take what you like and leave the rest. Mary, I just want to say thank you again for bringing this topic to the podcast, for bringing yourself and your energy and your enthusiasm. I absolutely no way could have done this episode without you. <laughs> It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.